Oh, on my blah blah bunker today we have um, Chris Jagger. Uh, you can guess whose brother he is by the, his last name. We talked about his um, childhood growing up in post Second World War England. Um, what he thinks about uh, the situation in in Russia and Ukraine now. Oh, and yeah, music in the household and how he got into music. This guy has kind of done a little bit of everything. He's been in movies, he's been in theater, he's made albums, uh, he's recorded over 100 songs, he's made lyrics for a lot of other musicians. He's played with Eric Clapton, with uh, David Gilmour, he's uh, made uh, lyrics, I think, for the Rolling Stones. Uh, yeah, he told me how he sees things and the kind of got off in a lot of different directions about uh, creation and music and, and um, told me about when he was a taxi driver um, when he traveled to India he hitchhiked to Greece uh, pre-mobile phones and all modern communications yeah this guy has really really lived a journey and uh, we recorded this remotely we were supposed to meet up here in, in Prague when he was here a few weeks ago but we we couldn't. Uh, he was recording some music here and, and got stuck in the studio, so we decided to try this online. And um, um, so I will actually make this available in video as well on YouTube, and you can find the Blah Blah Bunker on, on YouTube and subscribe to the channel and see the episode there where you can see Chris and yours truly on video. So it's a, it was a very interesting um, conversation with with Chris he's a really really nice guy and I, I do hope that I can meet with him when he gets back here to Prague um, so uh, yeah the sponsors guys that's Alfred Jobs Alfred.cz and uh, that's a job search page where you can find your next dream job um, there's an app as well in the app store called Alfred Jobs thousands of jobs in the Czech Republic and Slovakia and easy to apply with one click once you have created the profile free to use you're anonymous nobody knows you're there so and Alfred does the job for you he sends you jobs that are interesting for you not jobs that are not interesting to you and then it's the old bar old bar in cypher tower 21 in Shishkov, close to the main train station close to Vinohrady, close to Shishkov, which is the trendy area of Prague right now um, very popular place high ratings on all possible rating services Available for takeaway and delivery. Uh, the delivery is Vault and Bolt, and then you can also drop in and try out. And as the name says, then it's old meals, old bar, old meals. Um, it's old meals with different toppings. It's not your usual old meals that you buy in the supermarket and boil for five minutes. It's actually, yeah, it's uh, steel cut oats with all, all the nutrients in in the oatmeal still, and um, then homemade healthy toppings. Um, they make their own peanut butter. Um, you can have the yeah peanut butter, banana, dark chocolate. It's a great combo. There is a salty one that has um, uh, beetroot, goat cheese, and olive oil. And that's an amazing one. I bet you've never tried an oatmeal like that. And um, so they do a lot of these cool things with the, the oatmeals. And they have skier as well, which is like an Icelandic dairy um, made from an or- by an organic farm from a recipe only available in the old bar and um, that's the same thing there you can have different toppings so guys th- go and check that out and if you're coming to Prague then definitely visit the place uh, open on the weekdays on Monday to Thursday from 8.30 to 3 o'clock and then on thurs- on Friday sorry from 8.30 to 1.30 Saturdays 8.30 to 1.30 as well check that out guys bye Got a little minute to spare 
sitting down on this chair Yeah, recording is in progress, they say now. So how are you today, Christopher? Yeah, good. Uh, good. I've been, um, I've been clearing all the wood and chopping the wood. Hopefully it won't be too cold now, but um, that's always a bit of an issue, keeping warm in the winter. So wait, so you need to, you, you, you warm the house with firewood? Well, I've got, yeah, I've got, yeah, I've got a stove and, uh, well, oil's become very expensive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see that. And they blame Putin everything's, for it. Everything's getting expensive. Mm. And um, yeah, and so I've been working outside today. It's such a nice day. And uh, I'm going to take the dogs for a walk. And I don't feel like sitting in front of a computer. So. Oh, that's great. Um, that's and, we just, and we just started. But how, okay. how, how, it's a farm. You're, you're living on a farm, right? Well, at one time, yeah, it's a small holding, yeah. Uh huh. But you, you, you have animals, though. Yeah, got a few animals. I heard. I got I heard. a animal right here. That's really annoying me. Yeah. He's being really nuisance, and he wants to go for a walk. <laughs> and another one down there. Okay, but I heard on 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 one of your uh, oh, the songs. Oh. One of the songs of your new album has uh, has your animals on, right? Yeah, there's one about the chickens and there's one about the lamb. Yeah. Yeah. Mixing up the medicine. Yeah. Do you have the album? No. I, I, I'll be honest. All my answers here will be honest. <laughs> but, uh, right. but uh, yeah, so basically you're Chris Jacker. I, I found you. You came here to Prague to, to uh, uh, what? Like... Um, a documentary and some concerts and recordings of music, right? Uh, yeah, we, we did three shows, two in Prague and one in Kolin, just outside ah, Prague. Yeah, yeah. And and there was a TV crew um, following and you I around. Was supposed to, there indeed there was. And uh, I was supposed to have come out once or twice. It got delayed because of COVID. Mm -hmm. So... Um, yeah, it, it, I was supposed to come out, I think, last December. Mm -hmm. And then that got a bit mad before Christmas. So it was better that we delayed it a little bit. And uh, yeah, we had a really good time in Prague and everyone was very, very kind and looked after us very well. Mm. Um, yeah, I came out, it was right at the time when uh, Putin attacked Ukraine. So that the first night there was a big concert in the Wenceslas Square. Yeah, you got it right. And I went there and um, yeah, and that's been going on ever since. been very depressing the situation and mm. it's going from bad to worse and I, I've been very upset about everything because I got Polish friends and they're quite close to the Ukraine mm. and um, yeah, I wanted to go there actually and play a while back um and i never managed to do it i wished i had and um it brought it home when i got to prague of how close czech republic is to you know ukraine yeah. and the east and 
of course, people of my age and friends, contemporary friends, they already lived under the Russians for years and years. There's no desire to go back to living under the Soviets again. No. It's been, I mean, Russia has always been such a significant power somehow in this region. I think it's a, it's a very kind of, as you're saying, in a way traumatic for people to think that it, that something like that could come again. I mean, I've been living here for 13 years and it's one of the first things that I heard is, you know, Russia is bad. I mean, and, and, and the, and the memories related to that, but, but on the other hand, it's interesting because, you know, like you, you lived through this before. I mean, you lived through cold war, you lived through the end of, of communism and, and, do, do you yeah, think it didn't that... affect anyone it didn't affect anyone in this country you know we kind of mm. pretty fortunate we got an island and we haven't been invaded for a long time mm. but if you if you lived in poland you you get invaded from the east and you get invaded from the west you know mm. Mm. you never know who's going to invade you i mean apparently in in in, in the west of ukraine when 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 the nazis came they were happy because they were so fed up with the russians yeah they they welcomed the Nazis. They, they couldn't be worse than the Russians. Yeah, that's actually crazy. <laughs> so you know this. Um, it, you know, it's always said that Poland faces both ways, both faces east and west. Mm. This is the predicament. So, mm. um, yeah, it's. And I just was reading this morning of uh, quite a lot of musicians in in Moscow in 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 Russia. Uh, th- as soon as they say anything against the war, which quite a lot of them have done, they've been cut from everything. Mm. You know, radio, mm. no shows, no gigs, no, nothing. Mm. And quite a lot have expressed their um, discontent and their dislike of this war. And they, Putin just had a big concert where he was like the star turn. And, and the only musicians, he picked all the musicians who support him. You no. know, it's Patriotic Russian musicians, the rest mm. of them are just like cast aside. It's like the old days with Stalin and Shostakovich, you know. Mm. It's sort of like. But is Stalin. that? I mean, but but why is why are artists always important for for freedom and democracy? Do you know what I mean? Like because if we go back, we had the hippies against Vietnam. We had, you know, artists have always kind of been on the. <laughs> On the four, what, you know, do you know what I mean? Is it because they have a voice to the public, or is it because, well, because they're independent? Probably because they're independently minded mm. and not so easy to control. So then you either have to leave or carry the state line. You know, like you know, Stravinsky famously fell a uh, you know foul of the Soviet authorities, and he went to America which mm. was the greatest sin. So he was denounced by the Soviets, who, you know, Stravinsky was like the greatest composer of his time and everyone looked up to him. But you can't work where, where there is no freedom. So you have to be free. I mean, the thing is, you can't be a, a, a great state if you, don't, if you can't accept any criticism. Mm. So but do you, you have think- to accept criticism be able to accept criticism individually and as collectively. So, yeah, but I, I feel with that because I, I totally agree. But I feel that that's not only lost on Russia. I feel like um, I feel over the last two to three years there has been 
I mean, we've gone through the whole COVID episode where there has been a lot of controversy around it, you know, like a lot of, and, and for me, it has been um, a, a lot of times that um, you can't ask questions and, and, and you can't comment. I mean, I know one of your old friends, Eric Clapton, he, he was very vocal against vaccine, for example, and that, that instead of embracing the discussion and the dialogue, it was pushed back. And I feel that this is happening on a lot of topics, not just, I mean, obviously in Russia, it's worse, maybe, or, or more visible right now. But, but what do you think about this? Yeah, there is. And there's not only just like that, there's censorship if you say anything that's not politically correct. Because mm. when I came to doing that book that I just put out, talking to myself, you know, people went through it and you can't say this, you can't say that. You can't basically express your opinion. Or if you do, you'll be held to task for it. Someone will say, no, no, that's not acceptable. You can't say that anymore. So you have to self-censor. But you know, did you do that in your book? Well, I mean, I, you know, it's sort of like, it is a lot of it is to do with words that you use, particularly concerning race, sexuality, all that sort of thing. Yeah, you know, so that if and it's it's a bit ridiculous because historically, uh, certain you know names, you know, what it's like uh, words to describe people's color and ethnicity and everything they change. So ten years ago it was you, you, it was okay, and now it's not. So now you can say all those words on my podcast, Chris. Just to be clear, we we there is no cancelling or censorship I'm here. Just but saying that just sort of self censorship, yeah. So you are encouraged to to, to self censor. There is it mm. is getting very tricky. So um, yeah, and you will be um, not allowed on public broadcasting. No. Mm. You know, and that's what happened to Clapton, isn't it? And uh, Van Morrison. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, they, they, their opinions. Um, it's a tricky situation. I mean, it, in, in, you are in a tricky situation. That's why, like, in, a, in, in, a, in an emergency situation, they do ask people to um, come together and for the common good. And I understand that. That's that's you do sort of have to come together for the common good. Sometimes bury your opinions. Mm. So, um, but we just can't cross a line. I mean, we we it has to be. We still have to feel like that you can express your opinion even if it's unpopular, and then rather take the dialogue than to put the marginalize that person. That that's because without that, we we might not progress with that particular matter you know or I, I don't know yeah there's a lot of well the trouble is as you know there's a lot of fake news and mm. um with 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 the way i mean when i was writing as a journalist um occasionally you always had to check all your facts mm. um as much as possible before they're printed before they're put into print mm. so you have to double check you can't just say things if you haven't double checked that, that such and such is true, might not be your opinion. I'm talking about facts. Exactly. You know, such and such happened on a certain date. You know, someone has to check all those things. Uh, but now with the internet, 
um, and people just posting things that there isn't really any checking go that goes on. Mm. It's just put up there. And once it's put up there, then it's repeated. And then you just people, well, it becomes, is it true or not? Well, people just accept it as truth. Mm. No, so it's not. Um... It's it's very tricky because there is so much information flowing out there, you know, like it's an endless stream and and it's really hard to to dissect what is correct and what is wrong, you know. Yeah, and it's not yeah. I mean obviously in particularly in regarding wartime there's a lot of um there's a lot of false information put out. I mean in the second world war there was false information put out by the British, you know. Mm. They you know they, that was part of what you had to do, and and the, it, it, you know if, if there was really bad news and you know a lot of ships were sunk, they they didn't like to tell everybody because yeah, yeah. it was demoralising. So yeah. you know there's always that sort of false information, but I mean now there's people actually posting uh, videos, uh, young teenagers posting videos from. Ukraine where bombing is happening and they, they go out in the morning and they see what's been destroyed and they're just showing what's there. Mm. Which well, is, they might expose really, they might expose some of the propaganda in a way or or well, I mean you know that's just uh, that is that is just factual. Mm. You know so obviously they're not showing that in China or in Russia because mm. they I mean if 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 you can if you can you know, you can watch every news channel across the world. You can watch the BBC, Al Jazeera. You can watch any TV channel you want and make up your own mind. But if you can only watch Russia today, <laughs> mm. then That's you can't true. make up your mind because you haven't got the choice to decide if you think such and such a thing is true. Mm. So, um, yeah, talk I mean, yeah, go and carry on. Uh, no, just I was thinking because maybe what has just changed is that we actually have so many people on the ground who can who can actually prove wrong what is being said you know like it, you can't really in some way you can't stop the truth but it's just because there are like you said there are teenagers on the street taking photos and then you know i don't know putin is saying something and and these teenagers can actually prove him wrong that's right and um and also quite a lot of people in russia have got relations in ukraine it's mm. so close. It's mm. not like it's Afghanistan or something, mm. you know. So, um, anyway, yeah, we'll yeah we, we, we won't but solve this one. Interesting for me, writing the book because obviously I had to go through a lot of memories and things that happened that I re can recall, and I had to try and remember them as best as I could, and then um, check quite a lot of things because you don't want to be putting out uh, wrong information because mm. once you do put it out, you know, people will pick you up on it and say, oh, that's wrong or, you know. Mm. I read somewhere when you were talking about your, your book is called Talking to Myself, right? Uh-huh. And I, re I read somewhere where you, you were saying that uh, you felt it was important to document the family history somehow that you took this on. Why, why, was, why was that important for you to, to kind of, because I mean, your life is, is amazing actually looking at it from the outside. I haven't lived it, so I don't know how it felt, but 
I, I, looking at it from the outside, it's a very interesting journey that you had. And I'm, I'm thinking, what, what prompts you to, to kind of put it into written form? I don't know, but I've just seen my computer's only 19%. Uh-huh. So I what does that mean? So we have five more minutes. No, I might have to, re I might have to get the, recharge it. I might yeah. have to go and get the plug for it. Okay. Um, should, uh, should I pause it now? Yeah, pause it now. Okay. Are we plugged in? Um, yeah, but that's not on. Hold on. Yeah, so we were yeah. we were talking about what 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 was it inside you that that forced you or made you feel like you had to somehow document your family history in your life? Uh, well, I didn't have to. I, I wanted to. Yeah, but um, I, yeah, what's the urge or or desire? Well, you know, I, I'm a bit of a historian. My father was a historian, really, and um, so um, and then. My, I had an uncle who told me lots of family stories, and I just think it's nice documenting, fam, document, documenting family history, um, because uh, it, you know it's uh, often can be a sort of common heritage for other people too, and obviously people are interested in my family because my brother is such a well-known figure mm. that. Um, you know, then um, obviously my parents were quite influential in bringing us up so that history becomes, um, um, you know, uh, explains quite a lot of things. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I, I did pick up a book by an Irish author and it was about, it was about the fathers of uh, three well-known Irishmen, James Joyce, Oscar Wilde, and W.B. Yeats. Mm. And he did it, you know, there's a whole book about their fathers who were interesting mm. characters in themselves and helped explain how their sons became who they became. So I thought, well, I'm doing the same thing with my father, you know, mm. so. And, and, thought, and, well, and, 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 and your parents were both teachers, right? Or, or, or no, no. My mother was a, wasn't a teacher. She was a housewife. Uh -huh. No. And how did how how was that? You grow up in kind of a post-war UK, uh, or England, that's to be exact. How 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 was that? How was the how is it how was the atmosphere and? Well, you know. It was very safe where I grew up, pretty safe. And it was really, um, you know, outside London, 16 miles outside London. And, um, you know, it was fairly basic upbringing, but we th we were happy. Um, mm. uh, had lots of friends, played lots of sport and um, um, had attention from parents i mean my father was working quite a lot he he was often out working but you know he gave us a lot of attention so we were in no way deprived um nobody was an alcoholic <laughs> <laughs> no. uh, it was pretty ordinary sort of childhood if, mm -hmm. if a bit if a bit sort of standard um not that exciting in some yeah. ways 
<laughs> standard think, English childhood. Yeah, it was pretty standard for the time. Um, I mean, there was rationing when I had a ration book when I was a kid. Uh-huh. So, you know, sugar and stuff like that and meat and butter, all that was still rationed in, in when I was young. That you know, but that was the case across Europe. You know, that uh, was the same all across Europe. There, there was still you know a wartime in the nineteen. You know, I was born in the end of the nineteen forties, and in the nineteen fifties, they came off rationing. You know, there was the cinema was important. People used to go to the cinema. TV wasn't important. Mm. There wasn't much TV. There was some people had TV, but there wasn't many programs. Mm. radio wireless was important and newspapers were important and that's what you know going to the pub that's what people did you know yeah. it was it was fairly fairly basic and so the um popular culture since particularly the war time when there were a lot of americans came over to europe um then people got switched on to the American kind of culture with the records, first of all, kind of jazz records, uh, swing bands like my parents. I mean, all that was really came with the Americans, you know, mm-hmm. uh, initially. And uh, and then in the 1950s with rock and roll with Little Richard, Chuck Berry and, you know, all those guys. So mm-hmm. um, that was the cultural thing that was happening that I kind of saw when I was quite young because I was influenced quite a a bit by my brother who's four and a half years older than I am and so consequently I saw things that um, you know I was introduced to things that were a lot of friends of mine weren't introduced to I was listening to sort of when I was like 13 or something yeah, I had the I had the same luxury. I mean, my my sister is is not as famous as your brother, but she introduced me to a lot of yeah. uh, because she's four years older, and I got through her a lot of yeah. music that that my That's friends right. didn't even know about, and it, it I I am very grateful for it. But you said in some song, the coffee tasted like water. Uh, is that uh, is that an accurate uh, description of of how how the times were back then? Yeah, well. They just used to drink very weak instant coffee. You know? Yeah. <laughs> it, in fact, they used to drink Ezatz coffee. It was chicory. Uh huh. That's what they used to drink. Um, I don't think people bothered too much about it in those days. Mm. I mean, now everyone wants everything to be authentic and special. Yeah. I don't think people bothered about being that authentic. Mm. But then, although when it came to sort of music, that was also a factor, wasn't it? Because people wanted the authentic, the real thing. Mm. And um, I mean, rock and roll, rock and roll has sort of happened, like Chuck Berry and that happened a little earlier in the 1950s in America. And um, it didn't really come over to Europe to, for some years later. Mm. We were that much behind. Mm. Certainly a lot of the artists never came over. But, you know, I got to see a lot of great music in the nineteen early 1960s. I saw people like Little Richard when he toured, the Ebony Brothers when he toured with the Stones. You know, that, those were the early guys. Who else was on it? Um, with Tina Turner. I got to see Tina. Ike and Tina. 
Uh-huh. I can Tina Turner. It must be 1966 or something. Yeah, and, and Jimi Hendrix, I think you mentioned somewhere oh, that... Yeah, but this was even before Bo- uh-huh. Hendrix. Uh-huh. Then, then Hendrix. That was a kind of next wave. Uh-huh. So, yeah, then Jimi Hendrix and... You know, of course, I'd seen all the British blues bands that we used to go and see, like the Yardbirds and the Pretty Things and mm. loads of, you know, Pink Floyd, mm-hmm. early Pink Floyd and all that. So I was kind of in a unique situation where, I mean, which is one reason you say about the book, to put it all down, because I sort of saw all that. Yeah, Not many people were in such a unique situation as I was. Yeah, you're close to it as well. Yeah, Not only going to see people playing, but it was a meeting. Someone, someone, someone wants to go for a walk, I can hear. No, he wants me to play with a ball. Uh-huh. So, so you know, I actually got to meet them too. So mm. that was quite a unique situation that not many people were in. And I was, you know, I was just young. I was 16, 17 years old. You know, I was a kid, you know. Mm. I mean, I wouldn't normally have met those people being so young. I no. mean, because I was around and I took the opportunity. But how? But how come there is music? How? How does because? Wh- where does the music in the family come from? Do you know what I mean? Was there anything you mentioned that your parents had th- these? Oh, really? I think just. I think when I think when people heard, I mean, I've heard this from a few people. I heard mm. it from Robert Plant the other day. They, they heard the stuff and then they just wanted to be a part of it mm. for some reason or another. Uh, and only a few actually it worked out for a few the rest of them it didn't work out for yeah yeah yeah. we only Uh, see the tip of the iceberg yeah so well you should know about that so um of course there were some people who were quite gifted and some people some people were very gifted musicians and Mm. some people had to work very hard at it Mm. so Sometimes the people who work hard at it are the ones that stayed longer and mm-hmm. achieved what they wanted to do up to a point. But of course, I, I know an awful lot of musicians, a bit like me, who've carried on playing music down the ages. And, you know, they've really made very little money out of playing music. It's been something that they're happy to do and they wanted to do. But financially speaking, it's been a... It's, it's been a disaster, mm. you know, because if you want to bring up a family and stuff, it's very vicarious. You, you know, where's your next money going to come from? So it, it, it's a tricky business being a musician. A few people have made a lot of money. It's like a horse race, you know. Yeah, one it can only be one winner or two. Yeah, it's only one winner, and the rest you don't even remember. Mm. You don't know who they were. They just but they had to be there. They were in the race. But, um, you know, there wouldn't have been a race without them. <laughs> oh, no, that's true. But it's, but I'm, I, but I'm, I, I'm interested because I remember when I was a, 
a teenager. I'm 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 born in 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 the early '80s, and and uh, and I had a band when I was like 15, 16, and and uh, I mean my parents were not really against it, but it was always very obvious to me that this was not going to be my future somehow. That uh, that you know nobody in the family saw that yeah Almar can become a musician, and and they were probably right. But uh, how was that back in those days? That you know was because you probably there wasn't thousands of musicians and youtube and all the, all these tools that you can have to promote yourself was was there a support like when you and your brother said yeah we we, we want to play music were, were your parents like yeah go ahead uh no not really i mean my brother supported himself he had a he had a grant because he was at the university mm -hmm. so in a kind of way he didn't have to get a job because he was a student and uh even keith went to an art school which meant that he didn't have to get a job either. Mm -hmm. Brian Jones had a job. I remember he had a part. I remember him working. I think Bill Wyman worked and so did Charlie. Charlie was a graphic designer. Mm -hmm. But then comes the really problem point where you start getting gigs and you want to be uh, successful. So you have to either decide you are going to give up your job and become a musician. Now stop it. You're either going to give up your job and become a musician or you're going to say to the band, I'm sorry, I can only do it part time, mm -hmm. which means, you know, you can do weekend gigs. Um, and that's that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, but you, 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 that, there are a lot of people that, that you know, I mean, a cousin of what did they say he was my cousin. He's called Dick Taylor who played with the pretty things yeah and um he played bass in the early rolling stones and i think his wife he gave up music altogether his wife sort of insisted he gave it up mm -hmm. he went back to it there was there were people like that and and then of course as i describe in my book you end up doing a lot of different things you know driving the taxi painting people's walls you know, being an actor, um, you know. Yeah, I, I like two of your movies specifically. There, there is the one called uh, the Stud, and then the the other one, what was called the Bitch. This was like a, a a sequel and a prequel, right? Yeah, I, yeah. I, my you played memory. rock stars. You played rock stars in both of those movies yourself, I think, or something like that. <laughs> it was a fleeting appearance. I mean, I, I really did theatre, in, in theatre, I did theatre, you know, I was in quite a lot of plays, mm. that was serious, mm. the, the the stuff on TV, I did a few TV things and that, they were largely just jokes, uh -huh. um, unless you get a good role, you're just, you know, but I did do some quite good plays in, in the theatre, but of course they don't stand up because nobody sees them once they finish, yeah. um, but uh the, the, the trouble is you you know you do the show and then you finish the show and then where's your next paycheck coming from you it's, it's mm. not like every month that you get money paid in your account mm. so it's um but you know, but they, the, but the parents were they like i don't know like so you say your brother had a, a grant so, so they didn't have to worry about his, his income but no but like, parents want no because parents want you to get a straight job 
Yeah. I mean, that's exactly. when people come and say, my son, my son wants to be an actor. What would you suggest? I say, you'll beat it out of him. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But I guess, I mean, this, this is what put me through law school in the end. That was, that was, I knew that if I didn't do something like that, they would kick me out of the home. So I'm, I'm in some way thankful for it, but on the other hand, I hate being a lawyer. I think the fam- well, one famous one I know, because I met the band and they were favorites of mine. And Garth Hudson, who was obviously a very brilliant musician, the keyboard player with the band. And he was very worried about what his parents would say when he mm. joined they weren't called the band then they backed ronnie hawkins didn't they they were backing band for ronnie hawkins and and he said that he was their music teacher uh-huh. <laughs> so they kind of accepted that he was the music teacher for the rest of the guys and in a way he was but um yeah there's you know parents that unless they're very enlightened or yeah. That I mean, that's one reason why now you see mostly with actors and people in film, all the the only ones that are around are the pe- people who've got rich parents, because mm. the rich parents can afford to put them through uh, acting school. Then they can try and make it for a few years. They'll support them, look mm. after them. If you're working class and got no money, it's very difficult to get a grant. You have to repay it, and then. So you've got a situation now, most all actors and probably to some extent musicians are people with money, yeah. parents of money. But so, at, the, at the same time with music, what has happened now is that it's easier to make or, you know, like we have more technology. I mean, you, you, you are recording at home, for example. I know you record at home. Yeah. This would have been a massive issue, I don't know, 40, 50 years ago or a much bigger investment, let's say, right? There's more understanding now of what people want to do and what children want to do and what makes them happy. Mm. And parents generally, if their children are happy and that's what they want to do, they will should support them and encourage them. But um, up to a point. But uh, my my record that that I, that I did the uh, mixing up the medicine that was actually recorded in a studio before lockdown because you can kind of hear us all playing together mm. and. Um, definitely not done in a home studio a home studios is, is really for me is boring uh-huh it's really, i mean you can develop ideas but if you want to play with other people it's good to be together and playing live and seeing i don't really much use um uh you know uh, drum machines and stuff i prefer using real musicians because one of the jobs of um somebody like me that writes songs uh, and composes things is you'd have to try and keep musicians in work mm-hmm. so either playing gigs or recording or whatever else you can do because there are a lot of very good musicians out there and they need songs to play and they need gigs to play and that's all organization and contacts and reputations and names and you know leading a band and all that stuff and that's mm-hmm. really quite a crucial thing i mean you know there's a whole entertainment industry but unfortunately as you well know we it's been decimated first of all we had this ghastly thing called brexit Mm. uh, run by these dreadful people over here and across europe that uh, (laughs) you know and 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 then we've had the covid Mm. you know 
So the whole industry, music industry, entertainment industry, party industry, you know, restaurant, everything has been absolutely decimated, you know, mm. by this um, epidemic and and also by this fucking Brexit thing, you know, that mm. we've had. Um, so it's, it's, you know, it's, I feel sorry for people who want to try to make a, a living of it because, you know, increasingly being a musician, the, 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 the you've, um, work has become, is quite diverse. So you, okay, so you, it's very hard to make money out of recording anymore. Mm. You used to sell records and make something. Now you can't really make anything. So then you make money playing live gigs. But then playing live gigs, so many people will play for almost nothing. It's quite hard to play live gigs and make money. But then people still want to have parties mm. or their anniversary or they want to have a Christmas do. And, you know, they want to throw a party, either the people with money or sometimes, uh, you know, people get together, subscribe. And that has been saved quite a lot of, uh, you know, it's helped quite a lot because... Mm. There's that aircraft again, Chris. There's that airplane again. Oh, yeah, it's a little one. It's a little mini plane. Uh -huh. um, you know, because, uh, you know, quite a lot of work that I've done across Europe, you know, in Switzerland and Germany and places, are people that they really love music. And they look around and they see the music they like is not being put on in their vicinity. They may live mm -hmm. in a little town. You know, I'm not talking about people that live in Berlin people that live in a little town, they like living in that town. They're happy living in that town, but there's no music. So they get together, a bunch of them, and they say, well, I know we can use this venue. Let's do a gig once a month. So they they put their money together, they organize it. They, you know, they don't make money out of it. Then they invite bands like myself and other people along and we play in their town. And mm. this is fulfilling people's cultural needs. They're all their friends that get together. They have something to eat, they have a drink, they have a dance. And, you know, this is partly the function of music. It does bring people together and people enjoy themselves and have a good time. Mm. So it, it, it's not really even commercial, but obviously it has to pay. They have to put you in a hotel, they have to feed you. Mm. And so a lot of where I'm working on, the level I'm working at, has been like that. Mm. is that I go to the people's towns. You know, they don't go to the big cities. If you want to see a Rolling Stones concert, you've got to go to Paris or something. Yeah, yeah. I'm going they're in Stockholm, gonna, yeah. They're not going to go to your little village, mm. but I go to the little village. <laughs> yeah. That's my function. And, and all that has been happening across Europe culturally for quite a long time. And it's been... A very plus thing and no one from the eu or very few people said what a positive thing this was and how it brings people together brings down barriers mm. and we make friends and it's not really to do particularly with making money it's not really a business it it it, it works it, it pays a, the bills yeah it pays a little bit of the bills but you know this is what people like putin don't want They don't want people like me coming to Ukraine playing music and them all having a good time and, 
you know, being, you know, looking towards, of course, they look to London, you know, why you come from London to play music, great, we'll go and see it, you know, they mm. want to be part of, they want to be part of the whole movement. This is what brought, partly brought the Berlin Wall down and, uh, you know, years back, the youth, they just, well, they wanted to have Levi jeans and eat hamburgers and listen to rock and roll records, you know, yeah, they yeah. weren't really, it wasn't a political, they didn't have high moral ideas. They just wanted to be part of a bigger, more freer, happier group. Mm. And this is the function of music and entertainment that it, 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 people, um, you know, join together and, and share their happiness. Mm. And this is where political people who want to control uh, you know, control areas, they don't like it, whether mm. it's in China or Russia or, you know, Vietnam or in a lot of places, you know. Mm. That great big Russian train is moving down the track. My old steaming heart is rolling right on back. Inside the stuffy windows, Silent majority sad Pulled by the dark cat lady And a smoking diesel stack But like, but like yeah. in, 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 in your case, like you, you've, you've done almost, I mean, you've been in theater, you've been in movies, you wrote a book, you've done music, you have traveled, you have driven a taxi, you, I mean, um, I don't think I know or have seen anyone who has done as many different, you, you've composed music for others. Um, <laughs> is there, why is this, why, why all this? Why, why was, is that to satisfy some need in you or, 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 or you just, didn't want to be one thing you didn't want to bat on one horse somehow or, or... um well no, a lot of i mean it, it, no a lot i mean i didn't drive a taxi because i wanted to i just mm. did it to make some money so there's some things you have to do to make some money i mean i would write uh, articles for newspapers partly to make money but then I started writing about music. Then I branched out and wrote about other things that interested me. Um, but sometimes you do it because it's a challenge. But they're fairly complimentary because theatre, you're appearing on stage, aren't you? So, I mean, I learned a lot from being in the theatre about performing, obviously. Because, mm. I mean, you're in a, in a play. A play is scripted. You come on. You, you know, you deliver your lines, you interact, you leave stage. It's that's all scripted. You're sort of interpreting the writer's ideas and the director's ideas for the audience. Mm. But you're separate from the audience. You don't even acknowledge the audience in theater. You never go to the front and say, hello, how are you doing tonight? <laughs> you know, that's a complete no, no. Yeah. Right. Uh, you're on stage. So you're on stage. So that, for me, that was a great experience because then when I came to play music, wait, I'm on stage, mm -hmm. okay? So you, you understand the mechanics of being on stage and what's involved and how you should, you know, that's what people talk about their craft. And so over a period of years, I have developed a kind of on-stage 
you know, how I feel about it and how I perform. So I think that's complementary. And then when you come to writing, of course, you write lyrics. I began just writing lyrics and a little bit of music, but I wasn't really that very, um, I wasn't really, didn't have much of the musical education, but I didn't, I couldn't really play musical instrument that was. So I started writing lyrics, same as my brother did, because lyrics come from writing poems. You read poems, you write lyrics, maybe they scan, it's a way they sound in the sound is the music. So that's intrinsic, that's part of it. So um, then you tell a story. So you're telling a story. Mm. So, you, you know, you develop that. So songwriting is developing quite a lot of different little arts. It, art of the melody, the art of the poetry, the art of the scansion, and then you're performing it. So therefore you're performing your own little your own little works, aren't you? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm, the singer mm -hmm. gets up, he's written his song, he's put it in the music and he's playing it for you. There's a whole package in it. Mm. You've got the whole thing, you know, mm. which is different from someone just coming to singing someone else's song, interpret someone else's song, because that's that's unique. Mm. So it, that's a performance and that's writing. And so, and writing prose or writing for a newspaper or, you know, when I came to writing my book, well, that's writing too. It's a different kind of writing. Mm. But when I was writing my book, I thought, well, I could put some lyrics in. I could put a recipe in. I could put in what I want because it's my book. Okay? <laughs> so you're kind of experimenting a bit and having fun with it mm. because I think when you have fun and you enjoy it, then it becomes interesting for other people because you can't write something to say, oh, other people are going to like this. That you don't want to do that. You do, you say, no, no, I, I, I like, I like this. Now I hope other people will like it, but if they don't like it, I still like it. So <laughs> yeah, but I'm okay with it. This is a really interesting point, Chris, because um, uh, lately I've been listening to your music and, and I also was watching some of your videos on YouTube. And, and what really stuck with me about your music is that you are actually doing the music that you like. And it, and it, it somehow it just came to me that you're, I, I don't feel that you're trying to make something that you think others like. I have a feeling that you make the music that, that comes naturally to you and you like it. Yeah. Well, that's why I can only really do the stuff. I mean, I can't really do... Uh, modern my problem is that radio won't play my tracks mm. because they're not modern enough for them they're too old-fashioned mm. but i can't really do modern music you know if i was to do a track with rap in the middle of it and you know a lot of uh samples and stuff like that i i mm. I, I can't do that i mean my brother does sort of stuff like that he's much more up to date than i am Mm. I'm not I, I don't I don't even pretend to be to try to be up to date but then the problem I've got is that they won't play that kind of music on the radio because they think no it's old-fashioned but that's in UK in America they don't have a problem with that at all because mm. they have a cultural this is their culture and they're used to it. And so if you play something and it reminds them of something that perhaps Bing Crosby would have sung, that's okay. They, they're fine with it, you know, because mm -hmm. he's an icon, you know, mm -hmm. or Frank Sinatra, 
you know, these guys, like, they will still, I mean, I listen to Frank Sinatra, you know, whatever. I don't care what era they came from. If I like it, I like it. It's a, it, I mean, there's a song I occasionally play, which is called Blue Skies, but it was written in the 1920s um, by, um, uh, and it was in the jazz singer. Um, it was written by Irving Berlin. And it, it's a good song. It's mm. a good song today. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. it's an old song, but it's still a good song. So I don't see that. I don't see that. that you know, that doesn't that doesn't particularly worry me. In fact, I quite like old things. I like old books. When I I find a I find a poetry book and it's two hundred years old, and you open it and this guy's written these poems and you read it and it's it's good. Mm. And you think, wow, I'm reading something. It's someone wrote two hundred years ago. That's crazy. I'm, I'm really enjoying it. Yeah. So it's the test of time. Things can stand the test of time. Um, but so when you, but do you have like, um, because with with the music, like I, I, I feel that your last album versus some of the previous stuff, how, how many albums do you have out actually? I don't know, but I worked out Uh, before this album that I recorded and published over a hundred songs. Uh-huh. So that would be like eight to ten albums in total. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean it's nothing compared to Paul McCartney or no or Simon or something. But you know it's it's a few records and it goes back to the 70s. So mm. you know when I when I go out to play there's a lot of possibilities of stuff I can play. Mm. <laughs> depends what I feel like and what my situation is. So it's a bit tricky for the people I play with because sometimes I think, you know, it's like Bob Dylan does that. I think he just, mm. if you play with Bob Dylan, you're expected to know about 400 songs. Yeah, yeah. He might play any one of them at any point, you know. And he has done, I mean, he's done tours where he plays songs where I think a lot of the audience came to see something else, you know, or like, or expected something else. He seems to kind of play according to the mood that he's in. Yeah, well, he's one off. We, I saw him. We, I, I played in the Montreal Jazz Festival some years ago, and um, we went to see Dylan in a small theater. Well, you know, not that small, but it was quite a small theater. And I was with Charlie Hart that I, I wrote all my stuff with a lot of my songs, and. It wasn't until the very last song, which might have been like a Rolling Stone, that Charlie said that's the first time I heard one line of what he was singing. Yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, but on on your music, what I what I what I wanted to say is that I feel that the last album is a little bit different from the the previous material in a way that I yeah. felt that that was a little bit more bluesy, and then the the new one is a little bit more kind of swing, folkish, a little bit more. Was that a Was that a conscious thing, or is it just you? Just that's how you felt. Quite, yeah. Well, I, I think if you don't make an album, the gap between the albums. I think perhaps if you make albums regularly, but I mean, people mm-hmm. are always looking for something a bit new, a bit of a challenge. Otherwise, you just if you just repeat what you've already done, uh, it gets a bit. Um, you get a bit bit boring. I have done some more jazzy things. It's just that what happened was that I had this title talking to myself for the book. So then I said, I want to, I'm going to do a song called talking to myself. So 
then it came out like a sort of Mose Alice and Jazz Trio thing, talk, you know, like stream of consciousness thing. So I did that with Charlie. And then I said, well, let's we do a couple more like that. We can't kind of just one song like that. Um, and then there were a couple of bluesy things. And then it's less folky. Yeah, it's a bit more jazzy. And then we put a band together to play it. And um they were like session musicians, really. So, um, I mean, I think it links together okay. Mm. Uh, it can be difficult if you've got a lot of different songs that are very different style, and then you've got to try and put them together as an album. But then nobody buys records as albums anymore. They just download a track. Mm. So it almost the, the album thing doesn't seem to exist anymore. Um which is a shame because in the old days people had um you know album gave you a kind of identity with time and space not just one song but a few songs that you could um that could be played on the radio or you could play at gigs so i still think in those terms but really people now just put they do one song at a time don't they yeah, and it's interesting because actually the reason why we are talking here is through this mutual friend that we have here in Prague who played with you on, on those gigs that you just did here. And he, he sells used vinyls. And and I started, you know, out of kind of out of a boredom during COVID. And I started collecting vinyls again and, and, and playing them at home. And what was interesting is that, first of all, there was a lot of songs by bands that I had always liked that I kind of rediscovered and I found stuff in their catalog that I hadn't heard because... Yeah. It was all digital. I was skipping songs. I was listening just to a playlist or whatever. So yeah. you missed some of the, the mm. actually some of the, the the stuff that that you learned to appreciate again. And, and what I also noticed with albums is that, or when the vinyl was, is that you kind of had to make the the album with an atmosphere in mind. You kind of wanted to start off with something that hooked people in, and then you wanted maybe on side A, the last song had to be a slower one and then you would start side b with something you know it was a, the whole package now you can just slam you know one or two or 50 songs onto something and and people will just skip and forward and whatever you know it's a different it's a just a different era yeah and 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 people used to the classic thing was you had a b-side didn't you in the old days the b-side was just sort of throwaway but there's sometimes the B side is better than the A side mm. because it, it, it's all subjective, isn't it? You, you you think, oh, that's really good. And then you listen to something five years later and you think, well, actually I prefer the other, some, you know, I find that with photographs, if someone does a photographic session and you look at all the pictures and you say, well, I like that one. I like that one. And then the rest of them you don't look at. And then you look at them a couple of years later and you see, actually, I really much prefer the other pictures your appreciation you know it's sort of it it can change and you can um look at this it's all subjective but that i was going to say the thing with spotify and what people use now is that they say okay you can listen to anything you want to listen to right what do you want to listen to mm. right so you have to then actually choose what it is it's not like you pull out a record and you put on the b-side mm. and you 
like you say, you can't even remember what was on there. Mm. And you like the band or you like the singer or something about it. And then, you know, surprise me. I mean, that's the art of the DJ. We used to be the art of the DJ was finding tracks that people didn't, uh, that weren't that obvious. Mm. And in fact, what, in, in the old days when blues bands used to come along um, and they used to do covers and, the, you know, the Rolling Stones were one of those blues bands doing covers. And the trick was not, you had to do a cover, but make it like your own. So that meant you couldn't really do, if you did, let's say, Johnny Be Good, that wouldn't be very original because like every other band would do Johnny Be Good. So then if you did a Chuck Berry song, you had to do a Chuck Berry song that wasn't so obvious that you could make your own by the way you presented it and arranged it. Mm. Then it became your own. People would, they didn't even know it was Chuck Berry. They identified it with you. So in your set, you'd have that Chuck Berry song like that. You'd have a Jimmy Reed song that perhaps there wasn't anything. Other blues guys. So you do these covers of songs that were not the biggest songs, the best-selling songs that they ever had. Mm. And that was the art of putting your set together and building your fan base um, and introducing people to music, um, you know, otherwise you're just a covers band. Yeah. But, you know, you, you, not everyone can write all their own material. You know, a lot of people don't write their own material, but that's okay. But then they have to be very careful about what they choose. And that is another art in itself about what, what you choose to play. Mm. Because not everyone can be, you know, some people are just great singers. Who cares? You know, I mean, Whitney Houston was a great singer. She didn't write songs, but you know she interpreted other people's songs. But that's, mm. that's great. I see. But this was more common, though. I mean, we don't have the. I mean, I remember now when you, uh, the Beatles did this. They they did a lot of cover songs in the beginning, and then the Stones sure. did it. Deep Purple did like the first three Deep Purple albums are almost half of them are cover songs. This the, and and they, they it was like you say they made the cover theirs. Mm. And but this is kind of gone. It's not doesn't seem to be very common or or actually yeah. I don't I don't remember hearing a great cover lately. No, but it, it, once you forget about it, then it's you, you people are free to make the cover song, aren't they? Because the you know like that. What was that Dylan song of like um, you know knocking on heaven's door mm. or something? Or you know people just were sampling all those things. Mm. People sample now, so you don't really, in a way, a sample is a cover, isn't it? You know, mm. it's, that's what's been going on over the last 20 years a lot more. Mm. Um, where in the old days, people just, you, you just used to nick the riff. Yeah. Play it yourself. <laughs> or play it so riffs. <laughs> There's only so many guitar riffs in existence. Yeah. I, I had a... I had a t Ike Turner record. I had an LP and half of one side was Ike Turner playing all the different uh, blues riffs and styles. Mm -hmm. he, that's what he did that, was the session guy. Mm -hmm. So he, he would go da 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 time sequences and stuff and they're all a combination of one or the other of that yeah so more or less you know 
and Ike had just covered them all in one track. You know, uh -huh. there was no words, it was just instrumental. I don't know what it was called. Um Anyway, is there anything else? Yeah, yeah. You're an endless, you're an endless. Yeah, you're an endless lake. Uh, no, I, I just, you, you did a lot of travel. You went to India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Israel. What, what, why? What was that? Well, I like traveling. Yeah, and you went there as a tourist, or you went there, you know, I don't know, to rediscover yourself, or to find God, or you know, was there a purpose? Uh. Well, I started traveling with my dad, really. My dad used to go on trips and traveling and camping. And we went, we traveled across Europe, France, Spain, when we were kids. Mm. And um, I just loved the sort of freedom of it, new places, different food, language, scenery. It was just wonderful. Mm. I just take it all in. So I got pretty hooked on, I got, I, that opened my eyes. So then when I was able to go and take a trip, the first trip I took, I was at school and we hitchhiked, I hitchhiked to Greece. There were three of us. We left England and then we went our separate ways. And we said... Wait, you, uh, hit, you hitchhiked to Greece? Yeah, we hitchhiked to Greece. <laughs> okay. And we, we got the boat. We got the boat from um, Dover to Ostend in Belgium. Uh -huh. And we said, well, we can't... Three guys, you know, we can't hitch together. So we'll split up. Um, so where should we meet? So we said, well, where place we all know. Um, so we said, we'll meet outside the Parthenon between 10 and 11 o'clock in the morning, right? Not knowing what would happen. No so mobile phones? I, well, we didn't have any, no, we just said, we'll, we'll, when we get there, we'll meet outside the Parthenon. So I got there first. It took me 10 days to hitchhike to Greece as it happened. Um, and I got there and I went up the Parthenon, which if you know, the climbing up the Acropolis, mm. you know, it was the summer and it was very hot and, you know, and I had to pay money to go in the Acropolis and I didn't have any money. I mean, the whole trip cost me 50 quid and I was away about four weeks. So, um, uh, then my, there was no one there. And then I went up the next morning. I think there was no one there the next morning. And then the third morning I said, well, if I go up there today and there's no one there, I, I'm not going to do it again. And my friend, school friend, was there. The third friend didn't make it. He got waylaid in Yugoslavia when he met some American GIs. Uh -huh. So we didn't see him until we got back. So that was the name. And then we went across to Crete and we had a great time. And so that was my first taste of independence. And then when I was 20, I went to, I did the same thing. I just took off and went to India. Uh, I got on a train, went to Greece, then I hitchhiked all across Asia. It took six months to get to India. Six months? Uh, yeah, because I wasn't in a hurry. <laughs> I was yeah. some weeks in Greece, and then uh, we went around Afghanistan a bit. We went to the north of Pakistan. We went to Kashmir. Then I, I got to India and we went to Nepal, went to Kathmandu. I was in Kathmandu. And then I was about a year in India. And then I did study a little bit of singing in India because I, I loved Indian music. So that's one reason I went to India was the music um, and the culture and to find out about things. So that was my only kind of formal study in music has been Indian singing, which I 
took some lessons with the local teacher in the mountain village where I was staying in Almora. Um, and that's that grounded me and it, it proved absolutely very useful because I learned how to sing in tune mm -hmm. and how to breathe and it taught me scales and you know so without that I, I really couldn't have um, had a career really you know in singing mm -hmm. that's the most useful thing and I like that because I didn't really like West the way they taught Western music it was all classical music at school and I didn't like that mm -hmm. and um, so I didn't have anything to do with that really I didn't really have any kind of music education. That's the only kind of musical education I had. Mm. But do you think was, that is, is good or bad? Do you, do you think musical education could have limited you? Well, that's what uh, Jimmy Page used to say. What I liked about, he used to say, what he liked about the guitar is that they didn't teach it in school. Mm -hmm. So there wasn't anyone to show you how it should go. So you had to work it all out by yourself. Mm -hmm. And of course, in those days, there was no internet or anything. You had to hear something on a record and then figure out what the hell they were doing, which might have been tricky if they had different kind of tuning or something like that. Mm. So, um, I, I, you know, luckily I had that um, Indian singing um, education, even though it wasn't that long, only some months. But of course, in Indian music, they they do have quarter notes and they have these shrutis. Mm. So in a way, it's a little bit like the blues, they're singing, you know, flattened notes. Mm. So once you can hear and attune to that, then you can have an appreciation of it open. You know, there's similarity to that, to blues singing, mm. African singing too. So um, that was my one education. I mean, and then when I realized when I wrote the book, I really had no formal education at all, very, very little in either. Uh, I mean, I went to school and I left school when I was 18. But after that, I, yeah, I had no really proper f in drama. I had a little bit, but not much. So I sort of had to learn. I learned an awful lot of friends. So I always say to my children, my grandchildren, try and find friends that are much cleverer than you are because you can learn stuff off. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm talking to myself. Well, I'm talking to myself. Just talking to myself. You can learn so much off your friends if they're if they're bright and clever and intelligent. Mm. They can tell you stuff. And I learned a lot of in India, particularly, when I travel with some quite clever people. So they educated me in literature, events, world things, and yeah, I put all that in the book. So have you read the book? No, I need to order it on Amazon. Hope you can understand it. Yeah, but it actually, I, I read some reviews about it and, and I, I read some chapter from it and it, it's actually, people like it very much. And, and um, yeah, I, good. I, I definitely want to pick I've it up. Go, I've got to go and get a drink. I'm terribly thirsty talking. Yeah, so let, let me pause. I think we have just like 10 minutes left. All right, let me go and get a drink. Yeah.
I must go for a walk soon because um, it's still a nice day and the dogs yeah. want to go. Yeah, I just wanted you were talking about education, and I think like it's like looking at what I've looked up up on you. Then you you're very much educated in life somehow, and and uh, and I think you it's an interesting journey you've had so far. Um, mm. You you've seen so many different things. You lived so much different times. You you know post Second World War, you lived the hippie times. You lived the Cold War. You know the ocean layer, the acid rain. I mean, there's been endless things that are supposed to both start and end our lives during this time. And and then through through your brother and and his journey, you have also been very close to. Uh, I guess, as you mentioned, you met a lot of those people that, like those, let's say, rock stars and pop stars of 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 previous and modern times. And and I'm and you said somewhere, I think that that. That people have the impression that uh, that happiness can be bought, um, and and that, but you, for me, like you, as you mentioned earlier, you you drove a taxi to make money, but you you're still a happy guy. Yeah, well, you get a few stories. You get you get a few stories to write about if you do that sort of stuff. Mm. I mean, you get in some funny situations. Mm. I mean that. I mean that's particularly what has happened. To me, kind of like, um, um, do you watch Seinfeld? Yeah. Are you a Seinfeld fan? Not a big fan, but I've I've watched him. Yeah. There's one in which they go worlds collide, and he's like yeah. he's got this girlfriend, and then they don't know someone else, and then behind George's back, they somehow they connect, and he goes, no, no worlds collide we can't have that so i was in a situation where like worlds collided mm. so on the one hand you it you sort of like um i remember going for a an audition for a, a a play or a film or something and you were um you know you were uh, at the same time you would uh, there was a guy that i worked for that used, used to go decorate people's houses so you'd, you'd be decorating this house and then you'd have to go to this audition. So the two worlds shouldn't collide. Mm -hmm. they, so you've got to scrub all this paint off the back of your hand, you know, so you've got splattering white emulsion paint on the back of your hand. And, you, you know, you don't want to go to an audition with fucking paint on your hand, you know, because yeah. they, they say, and what have you been doing lately, you see? Yeah. So the, you can't say I've been painting someone's house. They're not interested in it because they're not really interested in real life. You mm. basically have to lie. Oh, well, I've been, you know, duh, 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 playing tennis or whatever. You know, like these people in Los Angeles, you know, they go and do classes and play tennis. It's not the real world at all. It's just this kind of pretend world. Mm. So you've only got this situation with worlds colliding. Uh -huh. and I, I mean, I, I, there's one thing I talk about in the book, which is I'm doing the Christmas post, which was like I used to make money at Christmas by doing, they just took on extra because there was so much post at Christmas. So you get work at the post office, you know, and in the middle of a Christmas post, I had to go for an audition for the version of Tommy in the West End where Pete Townsend was, mm -hmm. you know, so I'm one, one, minute i'm working picking up mail and the next minute i'm front of pete townsend singing a song 
you know, it's yeah. fucking nuts. Worlds are you colliding. <laughs> you worlds collide. You can't teach, you can't retreat it seriously. Mm. You know, so it's just mad. And and I just found myself in those sort of positions. Um, so I was kind of straddling these kind of different worlds. So I mean, that's just because of what happened. I can't explain why it happened and all that. So you're kind of surfing this kind of thing. So what you get out of it is you get these kind of mad stories out of it, you know. Mm -hmm. So if you were like a writer, you know, I, you know, perhaps I could have been a writer a little bit earlier. I, that's what I've been thinking. And I would have quite liked to be a writer, but that's what writers do. They write about shit that happens. Mm. and they can't almost make it happen mm. but but there is situations like this there's a Bukowski novel where he's writing this screenplay uh, for someone in Los Angeles Charles Bukowski he was a famous kind of beatnik writer mm. and then he just goes to the racetrack every day and bets he doesn't give a shit about the money or the film or anything because they give him ten thousand dollars so he just rents a house and he has beer in the fridge and that's he, that's all he cares about. He, mm. he's, he doesn't think beyond that. And he mm. goes to the racetrack, and then the guy says, "No, this needs rewriting," and he rewrites it. And he goes on the film set, and he's just rude to everybody. He just doesn't give a shit. But he kind of creates the stories out of what he's going through in his own life. Mm. Mm. So I got in that sort of situation. That sort of happened to me. So I was kind of one minute I was in regular regular world with people. Uh, working class people going to the pub and work doing their jobs and the next minute you're sitting with some you're sitting with Rod Stewart you know doing back in the studio with their mm. recording mm. it's sort of, sort of like didn't really make sense it's actually no, I, th I, I think I think it's really interesting because you you play as you say you you're straddling two different worlds very I mean one foot in the real world and one one foot I mean uh, you know, you recorded with Clapton, with David Gilmore. I mean, you 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 did lyrics for the Stones. I, I mean, you know what I mean. Like it, and it's and then as you say, then you drive a taxi. It's it's such a cool thing that you have managed to to live both. Well, that worlds. happens to quite a lot of people. And there's a guy. There's, there's a guy going back to Seinfeld. He mm -hmm. he does. He's the soup Nazi. No soup for you. And he, do you know? Do you know this? It's a famous Seinfeld episode. No, I don't and know this. And so the, they had to go to this soup place. But if anyone said anything the guy didn't like, he said, no soup for you. Uh -huh. He was the soup Nazi, right? It was a very funny, very funny scene. This guy became really famous for this scene in the Seinfeld. But he had a regular job working somewhere. And, like, uh -huh. people would try and get him to say, no soup for you. <laughs> Because they have seen they have seen him on the show, you mean, like in in real life? Uh -huh. They seen him. He was a sort of part time actor that they chose, and but he never really made it as an actor. So he was doing jobs, but he became super famous for being on the Seinfeld thing, and they even asked him back. Is it's a famous scene? The soup, no soup for you. The, he's the soup Nazi. But, but is I that mean, something he, that you have experienced? This, I mean, do you? Well, yeah, sort of like it's a bit like that, you know. Uh -huh. So, or, 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 you know, there's some people, you know, like one-hit wonders in music. You know, they they get one hit, and then mm. the rest of their career, they really 
try and try to get another hit. Mm-hmm. But whatever they do, they can never get another hit. So mm-hmm. they're known for the one hit, you know. Mm. But that's not a bad thing. But that's I addictive. I, I guess the adrenaline that comes from fame it becomes addictive in a way. Don't you think so? I mean, if you if you have I'll a tell you what, yeah, well, what I tell you what is tricky is people who achieve fame, they have a hit, mm. or the band is really popular, and then um and then it doesn't go so well. So they got some of the success, they got some money, and they may not have had the money because they may not have really made the money, but they've had fame briefly shone in front of them. So there, what are they going to do? They can't go back to playing at the pub or the doing the little circuit again because mm. they're too big for that. So they kind of, you know, they can't, eventually they do have to go back, call up all their old mates and say, well, what are you doing? I'll come and play in the pub with you. Mm. You know, mm. that's really hard mm. for sort of brief success so you know all that stuff you've got to keep your head screwed on and if it take it as it comes and mm. if it doesn't come you know what are you doing it for i mean i always always say look you play i've done some stuff with kids doing music you play music it's great because it's enjoyable you get to play with your friends you meet a lot of people you can give people a lot of pleasure mm. and do it because of that don't do it because you really want to make money. If you do it because uh, you want to make a lot of money out of it, you probably could go wrong and that you, you won't be happy. Mm. But it's it's like playing football, you know. If you love playing football with your mates, you like, you know, that you know, you still want to go play football with your mates, you know, you're not you're not a famous footballer, but you still love playing football with your mates. And it's like uh, that with music, you know. Yeah. So those simple pleasures are always gonna be there if you can do them. And they're long lasting. So once you learn those skills, if you learn how to play tennis, you know, and you practice and that, and you're not a bad tennis player, you go meet people, oh, come and play tennis with us, you know. Mm. And then you can have an enjoyable afternoon playing tennis and have a drink. You meet people, blah, blah, blah. If you never mm. play tennis, you're not in the game, are you? You know, so no. playing music is a bit like that. You get to sing with other people, you get to you know, you know, meet other people. You don't have to be super professional. What, you know, what I like about folk music, what I like about pop music is you don't even have to be that good. Mm. You just have to love doing it and enjoy it and bring something to the table. But even if you just bring your enthusiasm, you know, it goes a long way. Mm. So, um, But in you your case... Like because I, I think I, I feel like you live it like this, you take it like this, you 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 take it for the right and and uh, and you kind of go where, where where it takes you and and not necessarily with a pre-decided goal or end goal or 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 something like that. But do people have like any misconceptions about you because now you're you're Mick Jagger's brother and then they expect you to be in a certain way or to sing in a certain way or to want to to be in a certain way. Yeah, because the newspapers, they put, oh, you only play to 100 people and your brother plays to 50,000 people. Mm -hmm. So they try and make out that you're nothing. Mm -hmm. Why would, what's the, what's in it for, to to report it in that way? What's the motive there? So newspapers, because people don't have anything else to say. Mm. 
you know, they don't, I mean, if they actually listen to the songs and said, oh, well, I listened to the songs and all that, and I didn't like them, mm-hmm. that would that be, be better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That'd be fair enough. But yeah. they're just doing it on numbers. And you say, yeah, well, the Sun newspaper sells a lot of newspapers, but it's still a pile of shit. Mm. So what, you know? Mm. Or, or anyway, anyway, so what? You know, I mean, jazz music doesn't sell that many records and pop music does, but mm. it doesn't mm. mean to say jazz music is invalid mm. because it's not so successful. Mm. It's different. And mm. that's the way things are, you know? So there you go. Yeah, I mean, but... Um... I mean, look at people like, you know, look at Vincent van Gogh during his lifetime. He didn't have two pennies to rub together yeah and so then years after his death he could have been a multi-billionaire yeah yeah exactly that seems to be the name the case with all these painters you know they we all glorify them after they're gone because i guess then we run out of stuff coming from them well no but i think what it what it what it often means is people don't um they don't they can't uh make their own decisions about what they like or not they have to be told by someone else mm. if you're told by someone else that van gogh is a great painter then you're, you're taking on but if if someone just came to you with a van gogh painting and you never seen it before you, you you might not think it was that good because no one had told you it's good mm. so uh, that's true this is you know that that, that 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 that's the role of the critic or the person that that brings it to your attention but um, anyway, is that is that? Yeah, I think we... we're we're good. I just wanted to. So, what's coming up now? You you. So first of all, guys that are listening, so go and check out uh, talking to myself. That's Chris' book. That's on Amazon, and uh, I guess on all the Audible and and uh, audio book yeah. services. And then it's chrisjacker.com. Chrisjaggeronline.com or, you know, or see my Instagram or whatever. And, Facebook um, and all that. The, the album is called Mixing Up the Medicine. Yes. And, do, you, do you have uh, a copy of it? Shall I show you it? Yeah, bring it. Well, wait for Chris to bring his copy of the album. Guys, check, check his stuff out. It's really cool. And... Um, uh, you can also find it on on YouTube and Spotify. He has a Facebook page, and uh, yeah, and then the show. You can follow my show on um, the Blah Blah Bunker on on Facebook, and there is an Instagram account as well. And uh, yeah, it's available on uh, Spotify, Apple, and all of this stuff. And uh, here we are with the yeah. I like this. I like this cover. Yeah, that's mixing up the medicine. Yeah. That's my first record. Uh huh. That's when I was good looking. <laughs> yeah, you're really young there. You're like 20 something, right? That's great. That's my first record. So there you go. Vinyl. That's the first record I've had vinyl. The second record was vinyl, but that's since then. Uh huh. And that, that was on Asylum Records. Okay. David Geffen. Yeah. He did he did a few big ones as well. I remember he yeah, did. Yeah, I'll tell you who was on that label when I was with it was uh, Jackson Brown. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> Chris, it's been I'm a pleasure having you. Road, trying to loosen my load. I got seven women on my mind. You know that one. <laughs> yeah. 
Grace, it's been a pleasure having you. It's it's uh, and and let me know when you get back to Prague so I can come and see yeah. you play. And and uh, what does an Icelandic man do in Prague? Uh, I do podcasts and I have a small business here and and then yeah I ride motorbikes I run I I buy vinyl records I read books and and uh, yeah I met someone from um she came to interview me uh, somewhere from Icelandic TV uh huh a, a short while back yeah yeah I've never been to Iceland so I must go yeah let me know when you're there I'll I'll take you around you have an open invitation how often do you go there. I don't know, like three, three, four times a year. I mean, it was less oh, during COVID, but uh, but still, yeah, I tried to go like three, four times a year. Well, here comes my wife. She was born in a place called Arendal. In Norway or? In Norway. Uh-huh. I'm, I, I have relatives in Norway as well. And you've been married for 40 years. Uh-huh. Do you want... Yeah. Yeah, she was born in the south of Norway. Uh-huh. Norsk. Norsk. You don't speak any Norwegian, Chris. No, neither does she, because she came here when she was very just a child, very oh, young. Okay. okay. But right, yeah, then. it's been it's been a great pleasure having you. I I, I I I could have we could have gone on much longer, but I don't want to take time from your talk no. or you to walk out in the nature. That's right. Taxi Mickey. Yeah, taxi Mickey. <laughs> Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. Has anyone seen?